Jesus, we ask for your spirit to, to move in power, to come upon us, to teach us, to guide us in your truth. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through this text as we um, discuss what you discussed um, in dealing with, with conflict, with, with people. Lord, I pray that you would give us the, the humility and the love and the hearts and the forgiveness to, to operate in these things uh, in the way that you call us to. Uh, though they're challenging, Lord, it's, it's what you ask us to do. And um, we know because you're, you're a good God, you do this for our good, uh, and not, not just your good. So we love you. In your name, amen. Uh, if you recall, if you had been with us the last few months, um, specifically Matthew 16 and 17, we see Jesus doing some cool stuff. He's revealing his identity. He's revealing his glory. He's revealing his ability. There's a lot of cool things that are happening, and Jesus is doing these things to build the disciples' faith. But it's really, excuse me, focused on Jesus and his glory, his identity, his, his ability. Now, in this passage, uh, the topic's going to shift, and it's more about man's responsibility, specifically as it pertains to kingdom life. We have to remember that Matthew's gospel isn't chronological. Okay, he, he didn't write his gospel in like, this is how the events happened. Okay, in certain sections, it, we, he'll, he'll communicate things like, then the next day, or this happened next, but that's not what he's doing. Matthew's gospel is a more topical gospel. Uh, Luke would be a, a more chronological gospel and how the events took place. Matthew, he's speaking topically because you have to remember, he's primarily speaking to a Jewish audience. And he's trying to get across the fact that Jesus is king. He is the king of the Jews and not only the Jews. He's the king of all creation. So he communicates this way to help the Hebrews understand better. Regardless of what Matthew's method was, we know that the Lord, that the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew in these writings. And in this chapter specifically, we're going to see this argument that happens amongst the disciples. You ever argue with anyone? You ever have a conflict with anyone? Never, huh? You don't have issues with anyone, right? You get along with everyone. If that's you, please come see me. I want to get to know you better. Bring more peace to my life. But in all sincerity, we have issues with people, right? We deal with conflict, whether it's a, a spouse or a child or a friend or another family member, there's bound to be issues. And Jesus makes that very clear, but he's going to teach us in this text that regardless of whether or not there are issues, don't be the initiator of the issues. And he's going to teach us how to resolve these issues, how to resolve this conflict. And there's a reason, there's a purpose why he wants us to have this mindset of conflict resolution. And that reason is ultimately unity. He wants to establish unity amongst the body of Christ. He wants us to truly be a family. Which brings me to the title of this teaching, Unified Through Conflict Resolution. Unified Through Conflict Resolution. We're going to see Jesus... Uh, <clears throat> Is communicating to the disciples. They, they have this argument, and it's interesting how Jesus goes about this and how he communicates. He, he starts off and really focuses on like his relationship with the people of God and, and the love that binds that together. And then he's going to connect that specifically and how we're supposed to deal with conflict. You heard that. Uh, do it Matthew 18 style or, or whatever. And how we resolve conflicts, that's exactly what this text is about. But Jesus um, kind of builds up because there's something very important uh, that he's trying to communicate before he deals with the conflict specifically. And it's ultimately that, that, that we're a family. If you look at Matthew chapter 18 and verse 1, it says... At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Okay, the disciples, and Jesus is going to address this, they're not really saying who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They're really saying, are we the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
Are, are we the greatest? Am I the greatest? Which one of us is the greatest or will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And we see they have this conversation with Jesus more than once because they didn't really get it. What this did when the disciples made this statement or asked this question, it revealed this characteristic of their heart. It revealed entitlement. It revealed pride. It revealed this self-exaltation where they desired, and we see many times in the Gospels, they desired to gain a position, to gain prominence, to be the right-hand man of Jesus Christ. But we also see that they tend to argue about this thing. They're arguing about who is the greatest, and they do this quite a few times as I discussed. So the heart of this is an argument, and Jesus is going to teach us exactly that, how to deal with arguments specifically amongst the body of Christ, and even, secondly, with people outside the body of Christ. If you look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 2, says, then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them and said, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as a little, become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, that's an interesting segue. They asked him who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They're having an argument and Jesus says he gets to the heart of the matter. He recognizes that this is not an issue of curiosity. This is an issue of pride. This is an issue of entitlement. So he's going to try to teach them about that, teach them specifically about humility amongst other things. And he does this through an illustration, right? He gives this illustration. He calls this child over to him. He uses an illustration to teach them a deep revelation. And that's what Jesus does so often. He uses actual things that are there and present, the vine and the branches, the parable of the sower. He does this time and time again. He wants them to visualize, to teach this deep biblical truth. And this time he uses a child as an illustration to reveal their pride to them and teach them what it means to walk in humility. But there's also so many other things that Jesus is teaching them just through this illustration and this sentence, this little phrase, become as a child, become as little children, which brings me to the first point. Become as, become as a little child. Become as a little child. They're probably thinking, well, who's ever the strongest, whoever is the bravest, whoever's the best communicator, that's going to be the greatest. That's what Jesus is going to say. He's like, no, no, opposite. Whoever becomes as a little child. So what does that mean to become as a little child? Why would he use a little child? This is so fascinating. And we could talk about this the entire time. We won't. But there's so many things that children teach us. See, children in their relationship to their parents, they're absolutely dependent on their parents. They're dependent on their parents. Jesus wants us to be dependent on him. When I was a child... I was obsessed with my dad. He was like my God. I thought he was the best. He was the strongest. He was the smartest. Anything that he said or did, I wanted to say and do. And that's what the Lord wants to do with us. He wants us to look at him like that, like he's the best. I want to be just like my dad. I want to be just like my heavenly father. And if you see with kids so often, I have nieces and nephews, they imitate what you do. For better or for, for worse, right? They'll do whatever you do. If it's a good thing or if it's a bad thing. Now God, he wants that relationship with us. He desires us to do just that, to imitate him exactly. Uh, it says in Fe- Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. We're called to be children of God. And in that, as children, look up to our heavenly father and and imitate him. Walk like he walked. Do what he did. Children also, they're extremely humble. They're humble. Okay, Children, they, they, they experience wonder on another level. It's like, remember being a kid or even watching a kid. You go outside and it's like, Oh my gosh, trees and lizards and animals and birds and all these different things. They're like, they are just in wow of creation, right? Creation's like the coolest thing ever. The Lord wants us to have that wonder. He wants us to have that wow in his creation. That's why he says, be like a little child. They're excited about everything, right? 
They're excited. They get so excited. They're so ecstatic. The Lord wants us to get excited. He wants us to get ecstatic about our faith. That's this term, this childlike faith. Become as a little child. But there's also a second side to this. Remember, they're having this argument and Jesus uses this child to teach them something else. What? You're all my children. You guys are all my children. These, these are the children of God. These disciples are, are God's children. And because you're my children, you have no business getting in an argument. You have no business in causing division and starting conflict. Now, there's an interesting uh, story. One of my friends, um, kind of segue, one of my friends, uh, two of them actually, Dirk and Joey, they were at like this bookstore and they were in the Christian uh, section. They were looking for a book and this girl came over and uh, they said something about Jesus. And, and she says, well, we're all children of God. And Dirk goes, who told you that? <laughs> and she points to her manager. He told me that. And he's like, wait, wait, you got to understand something. Not everyone is a child of God. There's a difference between God's creation and God's children. And the Bible makes that very clear for one example is in John chapter 1, verse 12. In John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, speaking of Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name. It's a right to become a child of God. And we only gain that right by believing in Jesus Christ. By making God the Father our Father, then we become children of God. Every person is God's creation, but not every person is God's child. And that's important to note. And Jesus is speaking to men that, that are his children, other than Judas maybe. Okay, But he's speaking to men that are having an argument. He says, hey, I'm using this child to give you an illustration that you are my children. And I don't want conflict. I don't want arguments amongst my children. He continues to develop this thought in Matthew chapter 18, verse 4, focusing on this primary character quality. Therefore... Whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. So regardless of the childlike faith, he's, spo- he's focusing on a specific character quality of a child in humility. Why? Because humility is a crucial component to resolving conflict. Point number two, humility quenches conflict. Humility quenches conflict. If we can operate in humility, and when we're confronted, or we confront someone else, and we can do that with a character of humility, that conflict will not be long-lived. Have you ever confronted a a, a humble, meek man or woman? It's like, after you confront him, you feel bad. You're like, oh my gosh, like, uh, they responded so humbly, so, so, they, they expressed meekness. It's like, uh, yeah, I needed to address that thing, but I'm already starting to feel a little bad because I said that thing. When we can respond in humility, it quenches it. It cuts off the conflict. But when we respond in pride, we add fuel to the fire. It's like, oh, I did this, well, you did that. It's like, What? No, that's just going to cause a greater conflict. Now you're bringing issues into the equation that don't even apply to the situation at hand. We do that time and time again because of pride in us. We don't want to be wrong. We don't want to admit that we're wrong. But humility, humility admits that it's when when we're wrong. And there's another thing here that Jesus is communicating to them. Remember, they're asking, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he says, you want to know who's the greatest? The one who choose to be humble. Why? Because God exalts the humble. And he says it like this in Matthew chapter 23. Specifically, he's talking about the scribes and Pharisees. And he says this, if you flip over just a few pages, I don't know how many pages in your Bible. Matthew chapter 23. He says this, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The disciples had a problem with exalting themselves. They were trying to gain something by following Jesus, okay? But the Lord says, no, no, no. If you want to gain position, if you want to gain prominence, you can't seek it, okay? 
You got to seek the opposite. You need to seek humility. You have to identify with the lowly. And when you humble yourself, then I'll exalt you. One of my favorite examples, we've been studying Joseph in Genesis. And so much of Genesis is about Joseph. About a quarter of the book of Genesis is about this character, Joseph. And we see when he really comes on the scene uh, after he's born and where we start to get to know him in Genesis chapter 37, he is a prideful, entitled 17-year-old young man. He thinks the world revolves around him, and he tells his brothers about it. One day you're going to bow down to me. It's like, what? You're the second youngest and you're going to say this to us. We see so much pride, so much entitlement. What was Joseph doing? He was exalting himself. When we exalt ourselves, God is going to humble us. And that's what he did with Joseph. And the humility that, that God taught Joseph and how he went about it. I don't want that for myself. It was 13 years. He was betrayed. He was, he was sold as a slave. He was falsely accused, then he was in prison, then he was forgotten. 13 years later, finally, he learned something. What? Humility. And when he learned humility, then God exalted him and literally put him at the right hand of Pharaoh, who at the time was the most powerful man in the world. Joseph became the second most powerful man in the world at that time, but he couldn't get to that position until he learned humility. When we choose to operate in pride, we're asking for a demotion. We're asking for God to almost knock our legs out from under our feet and bring us to that lowly place. And he does that in so many ways. But it's such an important character quality that he wants to instill in his children that we would be humble, that we would be humble children. And this wasn't something that Jesus just tells us to do. This is something that Jesus did. And we see it time and time again. But one verse I love in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, he's speaking about the mind of Christ. This was the Lord's mind. He says, in being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, Jesus, he humbled himself. And because he humbled himself, the Lord exalted him. He gave him the name above every name. The same thing goes for us. You're not going to gain position, prominence, and all these different things by seeking it. Not at least in the kingdom setting. It's by identifying with the lowly. It's by being humble. It's not I want to get something from the Lord. It's what can I do for the Lord? How can I serve the Lord? Because the Lord, he wants his children to be humble servants. This is something that the disciples were struggling with. They didn't get it yet. They wanted position and power and prominence. But Jesus says, no, no, no. You're not going to get it looking for it. You got to identify with the opposite. You need to identify with humility and then he says in this verse five whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me now we have to remember jesus isn't just talking about children in in general okay he's talking about god's children in general it's not just children yes it applies but he's making the connection and we'll see later between children and children of god so he says whoever receives one of them receives me meaning whoever receives a child of god receives god What's the opposite of that? And I'll talk about it later, despising them, rejecting them, rejecting the lowly, rejecting the meek, not helping the beggar, not helping the orphan, not helping the widow. These are God's people. All those who are humble enough to realize that they need a savior, those are the people that are supposed to receive. And yes, love on everybody, but specifically, he's talking about those that are humble enough to look to him as, as Lord, as Savior. When we receive those that receive God, we receive God. And he says this so many different ways, uh, but for time's sake, we won't get there. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, see, there's the connection, children who believe in him, to sin... It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. So he says, whoever causes one of these little ones to disbelieve in me, whoever instills doubt in one of these little ones, 
there's a serious consequence for that. Now, this applies to two things. It applies uh, to the unbeliever and to the believer, because we have to remember Jesus is talking about the, or he's talking to the disciples about children of God. For the unbeliever, if someone is leading someone away from the Lord, if, if they're trying to inspire doubt in them, for them to walk away, come on, just a little drag isn't going to hurt you, just a little hit just a little drink, just whatever. If, if that person is leading people away from the Lord, there's so much, the, the judgment is going to be unbearable. But this also connects to the believers. Again, he's talking to the disciples. If we lead someone astray in the body of Christ, there are serious consequences for it. The Lord's not playing games when it comes to sin in the churches. No, no, no. And we'll get into it later. We can't lead others astray. If we cause offense, we can expect not the Lord to condemn us to hell, but we can expect a form of judgment through discipline. The Lord's going to let us know about it, okay? He disciplines the child that he loves. He's not going to condemn us, but he is going to discipline us. And we see this also discussed in Romans chapter 14. In Romans chapter 14, Verse 13, it says, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fail in our brother's way. Lord, serious about this. Don't don't put a stumbling block in a brother or sister's way. Don't lead them into sin. If we're walking in sin, whether we realize it or not, we're leading people into sin. Sin spreads. Bible tells us that time and time again. So if we're committing something, it's going to rub off on the people around us. And the Lord says, no, 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 don't allow these offenses to come. It would be better for you if a millstone was around your neck and you were thrown to the depths of the sea. Now we have to understand this. For the Jew, drowning was like the worst possible death. They were terrified of the open sea. Yes, some of them were fishermen, even the men that Jesus is talking to, but they're fishing in the sea at Galilee, okay? This isn't the Pacific Ocean. This isn't the Atlantic. The Jews were terrified of drowning so much so that they wouldn't inflict drowning as capital punishment. It's like, nobody deserves drowning, okay? And Jesus is saying, whoever does this, is deserving of having a millstone around their neck, which in this case is, is a one-ton block around their neck and throw it in the ocean. You're not surviving that one. Okay, and he says, not only that's what should happen to you, something worse is going to happen to you if you lead people to stumble, if you cause offense. Don't cause my children to stumble. He's speaking to men that are going to be leaders over his children. There was an important responsibility given to these men, but there's also an important responsibility given to us as children of God too. We're not to lead people into sin, to cause them to go astray. Look what he says, Matthew chapter 18, verse 7. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. We see two woes here. The first one is addressed to the world. And this is like a cry. The Lord's crying out, woe to the world. Like this is so unfortunate that this is what's come because of sin in the earth and and the corruption that it's brought. The first woe is a cry. It burdens the Lord. The second woe is a woe of judgment. Okay, He says, woe to the world because offenses have come and inevitably they will come. Okay, we live in a problematic world. Why? Because it's full of problematic people. Okay, where we have people, we have problems. Where we have people, we have sin. Okay, right. That's just the the truth of the matter. So just, I know offenses are going to come. I know sin's going to happen, but woe to the man who leads people into sin. Woe to the man who causes others to sin and he himself walks in to sin. Matthew chapter... 18 verse 8 if your hand or foot causes you to sin cut it off and cast it from you it is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire and if your eye causes you to sin pluck it out and cast it from you it is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire okay 
important. Jesus isn't speaking literally, but he is speaking seriously. Okay, and he is speaking, uh, he's speaking spiritually. See, if this is really what he wanted us to do, we'd all be blind with no hands and no legs. We wouldn't be able to make it to church, right? But he's speaking spiritually though, saying, hey, hey, you need to do whatever it takes to cut the sin out of your life, especially when that sin is leading others astray. Whatever you have to do to prevent yourself from falling into that specific sin again, do it. Uh, point number three. Don't cause sin, cut off sin. Don't cause sin, cut off sin. He says, woe to the man who brings offenses. So instead of bringing offenses, this is what I want you to do to prevent yourself from bringing offenses and leading others astray. You need an amputation of your flesh. You need to radically get serious and violent about the cutting off of your flesh, doing whatever it takes in your life to prevent yourself from falling into that same sin. He was just talking about the world. And then he addresses the, the sin. See, it's easy for us to, to, to look at the world and say, well, they walk this way or they handle these things or they do these things. So it's okay for me to do these things. So they're saying, just because that stuff's happening in the world doesn't mean it's okay for my children. No, we're called to be set apart. He sanctified us by his word, by his truth. We're called to be in the world, not of the world. That's what he tells us in John chapter 17. So even though we see these things happening in the world, for example, pluck out your eye. How many highways do you drive by in California where you have to like almost get in an accident because you turn the other way? No, in all sincerity, you see billboards everywhere, right? Of, of showgirls and all these different things. And it's just, this is what the world is promoting. This is what life is all about. Just because they're up there doesn't mean it's okay for us to look at them. And just because the world says this is what should be on TV or, or this is what's okay, it, it doesn't mean that it's okay for the child of God. Do whatever it takes. Pluck out your eye, not literally, but spiritually. Do whatever you, make a covenant with your eyes. Do whatever you can to not set your eyes on those things, to not set your heart on those things, because if you do, you're no better than the world. You're part of the world that I've consecrated you from. I've set you apart from. I've sanctified you from the world. See, we have to remember Jesus makes the connection between the world and sin. And we know the Bible tells us that Satan is the what? The ruler of this world, the God of this age, right? Obviously, God is ultimately in control. But when Adam and Eve fell into sin, basically, they gave up their position of having dominion over the earth. And Satan took it because he led them into sin. Whatever we obey, we become a slave to that thing. Adam and Eve made themselves a slave to sin in that moment. And when we choose sin, we do the same. But the point is, the God of this world is trying to lead each and every person into sin so that he can either rob them of their soul for an unbeliever or for a believer, rob them from the abundant life that Christ wants for them. Cut these things off. He doesn't want you to hurt yourself. He wants to heal you. He doesn't want you to be physically not able to do things. No, he wants you to be able to have a, a spiritually abundant life. He says, I've come to give you life and life abundant. These things that the world teaches us to do, it prevents us from having that life that God promised for us. So Jesus says, don't cut this off for me, cut this off for you. I want you to experience these things and the things that you keep walking and the things that you keep handling, the things that you keep looking at are, are robbing you from, from the abundant life that the Lord wants for us so he goes and he makes this connection to sin and then look at verse 10 matthew chapter 18 verse 10 take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones for i say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven so he's focusing specifically again on leading people into sin and we can do that through arguments and conflict okay it's just one example but then he says take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones don't despise god's children okay we might have different desires we might have be different people but the reality of it is in in, in really every culture there's this clicky thing that happens the mountain people and the flatlanders, right? The flatlander. I couldn't think of the word last service, but I remember now. I'm like, I don't know what I am. Uh, I'm like uh, somewhere in between. 
But, but in all sincerity, we can, we can put these labels on ourselves. Well, I'm like this kind of person, and they're like that kind of person. And we, that can lead to this place that we're despising them. The Lord's like, dude, do not despise my children. I don't care if you guys see eye to eye or if you live in different places or community, communities. My children are my children. And if you're my child, you're part of my family. So regardless of who that person is and what they're like, if they're my child, you need to love them. You need to respect them. You need to bring them in and allow them to be a part of your life. Now, obviously, we're going to have different friends and different desires. We usually hang out with the people that we like to do the same thing. But we can't lead, let that lead us to a place where we despise other believers because they might not see eye to eye with us. He says, don't despise them. And then he says in verse 10, for I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. What is he saying here? He's reflecting on the intimacy that God has with his children. He has angels watching over his children. Do not despise them. This is how much I care for them. I'm protecting them. Through even angels. Now, a lot of people will take this verse and because it says they're angels, that's where we get the guardian angel thing, right? We also see this in Acts chapter 12. Peter is in prison. The church is praying for him. And then we see through the power of prayer, this angel comes and releases Peter. Now, Peter, when he goes back to the house where they're praying, the people don't believe it's Peter because they don't believe in the power of prayer, but it worked. And then they say, must be Peter's angel. It can't be Peter. No way he got out of prison. It must be Peter's angel. So if you want to take that first too and say, oh, oh, each and every person has a guardian angel. There's nothing in the scriptures that say that each of us have a specific angel that's designated to us. Now, the scriptures do say that the Lord does protect us through, through angels. And there's different kinds of angels. And we're not going to get in this whole thing about angels, but do we each have a guardian angel? I don't know. Do we each have angels that, that, that guard us? Does, do angels guard God's people? Yes, they do. Okay. So that's all we can really say in the scripture. I don't know if we each have one, but if you think about that, if we each had one, what happens when you die? Does the angel stop guarding people? It's like, is God producing more angels as the population increases? Now we got 7 billion angels. Like, you know what I mean? And then wait, what happens when somebody gets saved? Did they just get a new angel? Like, it's just, it gets into this thing and it's like a mess. We have angels looking out for us and that's, that's what God's heart is. That's what he's communicating. Don't, don't despise them. I, I intimately care about my children so much so that I, I send angels to protect them and those angels are intimate with my father. Look at verse 11. For the son of man has come to save that which was lost. Jesus came for the lost. He's making the connection between his children and the lost. Because that's who he came for. He came to gain. He came to save his lost children. So don't despise them. If someone seems lost, if someone seems abandoned, if someone seems like they've gone through some something really rough, it's easy for us to like, uh... Yeah, they, they, they don't live in a house. They live on the streets, all these different things. Oh, yeah, that's, that's not my kind of people. I, I, I despise them. That one in the Lord's heart. He came for those people. So what's the message there for us? We should too, right? He had this heart for the lost. So we should have that same heart imitating God as dear children for the lost, those lost children that don't even realize they're lost yet or don't know the Lord yet. He came for them specifically. Now he's going to elaborate on that a little bit in his pursuit of the lost. In verse 12, says this, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? Jesus is giving the disciples an illustration that they would understand about what shepherds do when one of their sheep is lost, when one of their sheep goes astray. We know from John chapter 10 that Jesus is what? The good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. And he seeks after that one sheep. He'll leave the 99. The 99 are good. And this isn't the same parable as Luke. Okay, there's another parable there, and it's a little different, but very similar. Not to confuse you. The heart is that Jesus is intimately involved with each individual's life and he cares intimately about each individual so much so that he, he pursues them he pursues those those that go astray 
Meaning if someone in the church went astray and that's truly God's child, he, he will pursue them. He will do whatever it takes to draw them back, to bring them back to the flock. He'll leave the 99 to get the one. He cares about every single individual. It's not just all his children, it's every single child. He seeks those that go astray. Now, there's a balance here. We also know, and we'll talk about it a little bit uh, in a minute, uh, in Romans chapter 1, uh, it also says in Ezekiel that God will give us over to our idols. He'll, he'll give us over to the desires of our hearts. So if we have a, a, a person in the church continuing on in, in sin and, and following this lifestyle, we see the Lord has this balance and he meets the balance perfectly where sometimes he'll give people over and sometimes he pursues them. Okay, and he uses both things all with the idea and the concept to bring them back. Okay, sometimes he has to wait for them to take initiative. Sometimes he takes the initiative. Right now, the heartbeat is take initiative. If the Lord seeks out that one lost person, then we're called to seek out that one lost person. If you find someone lost, bring him here. Seriously, bring him to the church. That's what the church is for. It's for lost people. It's for God's children that went astray. He brings us back to, 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 to bring us to green pastures and still waters and a life that, that honors him, a life that's blessable, a life that, that we can actually enjoy. So he says, the shepherd, he seeks diligently out for the stray sheep. And then he says in verse 13, and if you should find it, surely I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Now we see the Lord, he's not burdened by seeking out for the lost. He's not like, oh man, Calvin went astray again. I'm too tired to go look out for him. Like whatever, just whatever, let whatever happen to him. He wants to keep living that cycle. No, no, he diligently pursues that lost sheep so much so that he rejoices when he finds him because he knows he's going to find him. He knows he's going to get him back. Do we have joy like that when it comes to people that are lost? I'll tell you, being a part of someone being brought to the Lord, it's one of the most joyous experiences you can ever experience. If you walk in obedience and the Lord puts that on your heart, you're supposed to speak to that lost sheep because that's really his child that's gone astray and we're communicating and how he's called us to communicate the gospel and that person gets saved. It's like, wow, joy. But we shouldn't be burdened because the Lord wasn't burdened. We shouldn't uh, see seeking the lost as a burden. We should see it as a blessing. Matthew chapter 18, verse 14. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. It's not God's will that any of these little ones should perish. God desires that all men will be saved. That's what Second Peter chapter 3 tells us. He's, he desires that all men will be saved. Well, all men aren't saved. As we see God's sovereignty, His perfect will is that all men would be saved. But God doesn't force his love on people. He doesn't make people be saved. So he gives them the choice. We can either choose that relationship with the Lord or decline that relationship with the Lord. But when we make that decision, we're making an eternal decision. If I don't want Jesus now, you're not going to get Jesus later. And that's what he's getting at. He doesn't want one of these. He wants every single man, every single woman to be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God so loved the world, but the world doesn't so love God. And because they don't, they don't pursue, even when he's pursuing them. But his heart is that they would all come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Now, you have to remember, he was really pressing this idea of, of his heart for his children and his heart for the lost. Okay, remember, this started with an argument, and now he's, he's hey, this is my heart for my people. Okay, now he's going to address specifically the issue. He expressed his love for his people. Now he's going to get down to it. This is how you deal with issues amongst the body. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. 
If you get in an argument, if you have a conflict with a, a brother, sister in the Lord, he says, go to them, communicate to them. But he says, communicate to them alone. You know what he doesn't say? Don't gossip about them. He doesn't say gossip about them. He doesn't say, hey, just talk about them until they hear it from somebody else. No, no, no. That's not the way to go about it. But so often we can, we can fall into that. It's like, man, you have no idea what this guy or this girl did to me. And, and, and I just need a vent. Whoa, 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 hold off. That isn't biblical. That's not what the Lord calls us to do. He calls us to go to them one-on-one, to go to them alone. And the problem with this text, a lot of people forget it, myself included. People like to go straight to the top. You want to skip step one, step two, we'll get into the steps and go to step three. (laughs) People come to me all the time. I have this issue with this person and yada, yada, yada. And depending on how severe it is, a lot of times I'll say, did you talk to them about it? Have you addressed it with them? Okay, come back to me when you, when you do it this way. Because this is the, the biblical way. And if we're not doing this in a way that honors God's heart, then it's not going to produce the fruit that he wants us to produce. He says, confront that person alone. We're the ones that are called to confront the person. We can't wait for them to confront us. It's our responsibility to pursue reconciliation, which is the fourth point. Reconciliation is our responsibility. Reconciliation is our responsibility. Reconciliation just means like the the um, res- restoring friendly relations. Okay, we can always say, "Well, they wronged me, and I'm going to wait till they apologize." That's not biblical. He says, "You go find them. You, if they sinned against you, this isn't the person that sinned. This is the person that was sinned against." He says. The person that was sinned against, go talk to that person. Go confront them. Like, wait, no. If they're not apologizing, I'm not forgiving them. That's not the way to go about it. He says, you pursue them. It's your responsibility. It's so important that we do this, that that we confront the individual. And I'll elaborate more. See, the problem with many of us is we don't like conflict. We don't like confrontation. We don't want to start, I'd rather just let it go. And I don't want to start the confrontation. Certain scenarios, that's good, and we'll talk about that. But the Lord's calling us to, to confront them, to talk to them. We don't like conflict and confrontation. Why? Because we want everybody to like us. <laughs> but at the risk of bringing that person to restoration, we sacrifice, oh, I want them to like me even though I know that they're in this sin and this sin is preventing them from intimacy with the Lord and it becomes this selfish thing. I don't want to engage in conflict or confrontation because I want them to like me. You're more concerned about yourself than the other person. Love often looks like confrontation. And we see that throughout the scriptures. It's one thing to confront someone. And it's so important to confront someone. But it's just as important how we confront them. The Bible tells us clearly in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 that we're called to speak the truth in love. That does not mean we lash out in anger because someone wronged us. That's not the way to go about it. Speak the truth. Yes, address the truth. Address the issue at hand, but do it in love. If you're not doing it in love, then you shouldn't be doing it at all. You got to get to that place where I'm able to do this in love. And we remember time and time again, I discussed how Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that love is, a, is an action. He tells us what love does. Speak the truth in love. Love, yes, address the issue, but make sure that you're not just addressing the issue because you're so angry at them because they wronged you. No, no, no. This is a self-sacrificial way, meaning I'm not just addressing this issue because they wronged me. No, no, I'm addressing this issue because they've wronged themselves and they've wronged the Lord. And I care so much about their personal walk, regardless of what they did to me. I want to bring them restoration because they might not know what they did and that it was a sin. And I want to bring them to a restored relationship with the Lord. It's not about me and playing the the victim thing because they wronged me. No, I genuinely want them to have that relationship back with the Lord. I want them to know that this is a sin so they don't do it to the next person and commit another sin against the Lord. Now, important to note Jesus isn't saying that anytime you see an issue with anyone, you need to confront them and address the issue. He's not calling us to be like spiritual bloodhounds where we're like sniffing out every little sin. That we, oh, hey, you, I can smell it a mile away. 
You nodded off in church. That's a sin. Confront you on the spot. No, and also I'd have to do that alone anyways, if we have it biblical. But the point is, though, the Lord's not telling us to be judgmental, hypocritical Pharisees. There's certain issues that you let slide. Now, this takes the power of the spirit and discernment to know what to address and what not to. Wives, if you addressed every single issue with your husband, what would your relationship look like? If you addressed every little thing that they, all their little quirks, all their little weird things that they do, and you just pointed it out every time, like that, you guys probably wouldn't have a great relationship. Same thing goes with husbands and their wives. If you point out every little flaw in them, that's not a healthy relationship. We have to remember, it's not our job to change people. It's God's job, okay? And we play a part in that. But there's definitely a balance to find here between addressing issues and letting things go. And the only way we'll find that balance is by leaning on the Holy Spirit and even praying, God, is this something that I let go or is this something that I address? Because the Bible also tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 to not let the sun go down on your wrath. So if you're really bent out of shape and angry about something because someone wronged you, talk to them and talk to them that day about it. Make sure you're prayed up and you're doing it in love, doing it a biblical way, not gossiping, confronting them alone. And in that, you give the opportunity for you to be healed and them to be restored. The Lord is so against us being judgmental. Yes, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. We're supposed to evaluate and, and not be walking in sin. But Jesus also says this in uh, Matthew chapter 7. Really important to consider when we're talking about addressing conflict. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 7 verse 2, it says, for, what, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Okay, so when we're addressing something, when we're confronting someone, we have to have the mentality that 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 this is an issue that we're addressing. We're good with them confronting us about it if we fall into that thing. And really, ideally, it would be best if we were able to overcome that sin before we addressed it in someone else. Now, I'm not saying that, hey, you can't address sin issues with anyone until you're perfect. And none of us would ever say anything. And the issues wouldn't be addressed. But we have to be reminded of this scripture in Matthew chapter 7, verse 2. When we, when we confront, when we judge, we can expect the Lord to bring someone or even himself into our lives and judge us on the same terms. How did you do it? Did you do it in love? Did you do it because you really cared about their personal walk? Or did you do it in anger and wrath and you gave them the severe consequence? Because if we do it that way, That's not biblical and we can expect the Lord to do the same thing or something similar back to us. So love is the key here. It's not judgment. It's not criticism. It's evaluation because you sincerely care about that person's walk. And he says, look at verse 15, the end. He says, if he hears you, you have gained your brother. So he said, if he acknowledges his sin, okay? Because here's the truth. Sometimes people fall into sin and they sin against you and you didn't realize it. How often has that happened with maybe your children or your wife or your husband or friends in general? It's like you didn't even realize you said something. You didn't realize how they took it. It's like, oh my, I didn't even know that I said that. And now you're, they come to you, hey, hey, this is how that came across. And I feel hurt by that. I, I feel like that was, that was extremely offensive. So what he's saying here, if you confront that person, it's like, hey, this is what you did and it hurt. And I don't want to let this hurt turn to bitterness. So I want to address it now before the sun goes down so that we can resolve this issue. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. Meaning if he acknowledges, oh, that was sin. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that was a sin. I I shouldn't have done it. Okay. But if he says, well, whatever, (laughs) that wasn't a sin. Um, I, I don't really see that as sin. I don't really see how he, how I wronged you. Then the next step comes into place. And we have to remember that uh, just because someone hears us, the next step is repentance, okay? Because somebody could acknowledge their sin and not repent. And that applies as well. If someone acknowledges their sin, but they keep falling back into it, same thing goes. We want to do this second step in verse 16. Matthew 18, verse 16. But if, if he will not hear... 
Take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So if you confront and there's no acknowledgement of the sin, bring a couple other one or two other people into the equation. Why? Because with more people, you have a broader perspective. There's two sides to every story, right? And there's then there's the truth somewhere in the middle, right? So, so when we bring someone else where I'm biased, OK, hey, uh, this is this is what's happened. Bible says, don't be wise in your own opinion. So even when we're communicating to that person that we're going to bring in, this is what happened. This is my perception and opinion of it. Okay, so you don't come off with 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 pride, but with humility. Will you will you help me with this with this issue and see if you're thinking the same thing that I'm thinking? And with that, come to this person, address the issue, see what the conclusion is. If this indeed is, oh, no, we're all on the same page. Dude, what you did was wrong. That wasn't right. You need to make amends. We need to repent of this specific thing. Now, if they don't hear that group, that accountability group in that setting, then there's step three, verse 17. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So he says, okay, after you do steps one, you confront them alone. They won't acknowledge it or they still fall into it. Okay, bring accountability in a group to, to help restore them. You're not trying to bash them or beat them up. You're helping to restore them in love. But if that still doesn't work, then go to the, go to the church. Go to an authority figure in the church. Because hopefully, sometimes friends or family members, they don't look to their other family members or friends as authority. But when there's authority that's on the same page, hopefully that will convince them. And if it doesn't, he says, treat them like a heathen and a tax collector. What does that mean? Who's he talking to right now? Heathens and tax collectors. Okay, these are his disciples. Okay, how did Jesus treat heathens and tax collectors? He loved them. He long suffered with them. Even when they didn't want relationship with them, he either pursued them or waited till they were ready and tried to draw them here near. He's not saying like, condemn them okay there is a truth to excommunication here which we will get into in just a minute but the lord's heart is love why love is the ultimate tool in resolving conflict and bringing us together point number five love leads to unity love leads to unity when nothing else works there's one thing that never fails love right first corinthians chapter 13 love never fails when none of these things these conversations just just love him. Just love him. Again, because he's trying to bring us to that place of unity. If you look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 14. Colossians chapter 3, verse 14. Almost there. <clears throat> it says... But above all things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Above all things, put on love. Love is what binds us together. Love is what brings us together. He says, if they continue to fall in this, treat them like I treated you. Treat them like I treated like a, a, a heathen and a tax collector. Now, we have to use wisdom with this, okay? Loving someone doesn't always look like pursuing them. What do I mean? When it comes to a situation like this, and remember, he was talking about specifically offenses that lead other people astray. If there's someone in the church that's leading other people to sin, into sin, we've got to be very careful with our involvement with them. Why? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, it says, bad company corrupts good morals. Okay, maybe we have a brother or sister that's fallen into this poor lifestyle and we want to help them. But we've got to be careful in how we help them and when we help them. You don't want to go meet them at the club or the bar, you know? Maybe, maybe have them come, come meet you for coffee or, or meet you at the church or something like that. Yes, we're called to restore our brothers and sisters and bear their burdens. But we have to do it with, with wisdom. And there is a, a truth to this that when it's someone in the church that keeps leading other people astray, that sometimes... It's good to have a break, to ha have them step away for a while. 
And we see some clarity about this. Specifically, I'm talking about excommunication. But it's so important to hear the Lord's heart behind excommunication. We have to look at uh, this. And, and I'll talk to you about another scripture. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, this is like the main problem that Paul's addressing in this first letter to the Corinthians. There was this man that was sleeping with his father's wife. Okay, serious issue. This wasn't just in Corinth. This was people in the church. Okay, so he has to address this issue. And look what he says. Sounds harsh, but we have to understand the heart. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, um, verses 1 to 8, talk about it. But look at verse 5. He says, deliver such a one to Satan for destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He says, give him over to Satan. What does that mean? It doesn't mean like pray that Satan will do something to him. No, he says, give him over to his desires. If, if this is the lifestyle he wants to choose and it's been addressed one-on-one, it's been addressed in a group setting, it's been addressed by the church and they want to continue to do this, they're leading other people astray. And as a good shepherd, we have to tell that person they can't be around right now. It doesn't mean it's forever. It means until there's restoration, until they acknowledge their sin and repent of it. There's many shepherds in this church and the primary uh, uh, objective of a shepherd is to protect his flock, to protect his sheep when there's a, a bat or a black sheep in there, or whatever you want to call it. When there's, a, when there's a bad sheep or a bad egg leading others astray, hey, there sometimes comes a point where it, it'd be best for you to, to step away for a while. But we have to remember it doesn't end here. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, bring him back. Hey, this guy, I didn't tell you to not let him be the, a part of the church forever. No, I wanted him to learn his lesson that you would give him over to his sin, that he would realize the consequences of his sin, that he would realize it's broken his relationship with the Lord and his relationship with the body. And he would come to this conclusion that he would rather have the Lord, he'd rather have the body of Christ than his sin. And that was his heart all along. No, receive him back. That was for a time period. Give him over to what he's doing because we can't do anything about it and we can't be a part of it. But finally, when he gets it, when he runs his head into the ground for so long and he realizes that thing doesn't satisfy him, he looks up to the only one that does. Receive him back. Take him back in. Love on him once again. This excommunication thing, it was supposed to be for a time period until there was repentance. It was still all to be in love. Matthew chapter 18, verse 18. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Okay, we've talked about this before. Um, it's the same phrases that he's using here. When he's talking about binding and loosing, uh, I got a lot of conversations the last time. Um, we have to remember context and what he's talking about specifically. Okay? Before he was talking about authority given to the church, now it's the same thing. We have to remember these terms, binding and loosing were rabbinical terms. It was terms that the rabbis would use that these terms pertain to the law. What do I mean? Well, the law didn't talk about every situation that everyone was ever going to face. Okay, it, 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 God was pretty general, okay, in hopes that they would understand his heart and they would know what his desires were for them and walking in obedience. But what the Jews ended up doing was they made this thing called the, the Talmud and they made the Mishnah and these commentaries that addressed laws and issues that would happen that they didn't know what to do. So they created their own laws. They made these man-made laws and it would be things like this. Um, if a dog, if your dog dies outside of your house and his nose is facing in your house, then the house is unclean. But if the dog dies right out of your house and his nose is facing out of the house, then the house is clean. And it was like, come on, do you think God cares about that? Really? Like, they would go through all these different things and basically the rabbis had the authority to bind and loose people based on the laws. Okay, this is the situation that came up. Am I bound to this law? Does this law pertain? And do I have to face the consequences of this law? Or am I loose from this law? It was literally the difference between judgment and pardoning. Are you going to judge someone and give them the consequences according to this law that would be binding? Or are you going to loose them of the cause? Are you going to pardon them? Are you going to forgive them? What the Lord's saying is he's given the church this authority 
Okay, when it deals with issues in the church, when there's sin issues in the church, God, Jesus, gave the church the authority to to hold people to the law and give them the consequences of the law. Maybe it's excommunication in this sense or to loosen from it and pardon them and forgive them. He's given the authority to the church and the church leaders if we do it the way he's saying to do it. Okay, that's a big if. If we do it Matthew 18 style, the, the way he's communicating to us, then he will honor the decision that we make, whether to pardon or whether to forgive. That's really what he's getting at. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 19, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Okay, these scriptures get taken out of context quite a bit as well. Remember, he's talking about conflict resolution and it applies to other things. And I'll discuss that briefly. We're just about done. But remember, conflict resolution, if two if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask specifically with issues in the church. So you came to this discussion, this conclusion that what this person is doing is wrong and then you do the right thing and you pray and you ask the lord yes this applies to prayer in general but specifically he's talking about praying for restoration in the church when you pray for the people when you come together same agreement in unity and you're praying for the people that these sinful issues would be resolved that's a prayer that my father is going to answer anything that they ask he's not saying like um, if me and Adam agree one day that I need a new car, Lord, give me a new car. We agree. That's not what he's talking about. Okay. He's talking about sin issues in the church. Okay. If we have the same mind and that's the right mind, right? If someone for whatever reason, I hope that it never happens, had to leave the, leave the church because they were leading other people astray. It's not that we would forget about them. No, no, we're called to pray for them. And if we do, if we pray for them, that they would, God would pour love on them and there would be unity amongst the body, that he would bring restoration. That's a prayer that God's going to honor. Now, there also is a truth here. Look at verse 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Okay, specifically, again, he's talking about conflict resolution. Two or three are gathering together, praying for this person that's fallen into sin. I'm in that. Okay, you guys are pursuing unity. I'm all about pursuing unity. That's something that I'm going to bless. But this does also connect to prayer in general. Okay, the Lord, he's always with us. But when two or three are gathered, we see that something that the Lord loves. He wants the body to come together, specifically to come together Yes, for the word and worship and all these things. But he's talking about praying. He's talking about asking him for things. So this is really cool. I didn't plan this, but we were just talking like uh, two weeks ago. And we're going to start a, a, a prayer night on Sunday nights, probably once a month. We'll see how it goes. And it'll just be a prayer service at five o'clock on Sunday nights. The first one will start um, Monday the 26th. Why? Because the Lord honors the unity that we're pursuing through prayer when there's issues going on in the church. There's always issues going on, but not just issues, praise reports as well. That's something that the Lord is in. He loves that when we come together in his name. And that's so important when we look at this. That's what he says in verse 20, when two or three to gathered together in my name. What's my name? What's the Lord's, not my name, the Lord's name. What's the Lord's name? Well, in Exodus chapter 33 and 34 when Moses asked God to show me, show him his glory, uh, God said, I'll, I'll, I'll reveal to you my name. And what does he say? It says, the Lord passed before him, passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. What's the point? When the Lord declared his name to Moses, and he declares his name several times, but when he declares his name, he declares his character. God's name is his character. It's what he stands for. It's who he is. So when he says, when you come together in my name, he's saying, come together in my character. Come together with love. Come together with unity. Pray prayers that I would pray. 
Not selfish things, just looking for your own interests. No, no, no. Things that are going to honor God and edify the body of Christ. When we pray prayers that honor the Lord, those are prayers that he's going to answer. Those are prayers that he's going to take care of. But we've got to make sure that we're doing it in his name, displaying his character. See, that's the Lord's heart throughout this whole text, that we would come together. There's an argument. He talks about his heart for unity amongst his children, amongst his sheep. And he talks about the brothers. See, <laughs> distract a little bit. It's okay. Forgiven. I, I won't confront you about that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> he, he goes from children to sheep to brothers. Why? Because God's children are our brothers and sisters, right? So he wants us to not get in these bitter disputes and conflicts. He says, hey, there's going to be offenses, okay? We're all in the world. There's going to be issues. People are going to disagree. We're going to have these conflicts. Just don't be the one that's feeding into it. Don't add fuel to the fire. Be the one that quenches it. Be the one that ends it. And the way to end it is through the avenue of love. And that's the Lord's goal through conflict. Though there might be conflicts, his heart is that we would be unified, that we would come back together. But it's only going to happen if we do it the way that he's telling us to do it in this text. Offenses will come. There's going to be conflicts, even in this church. I hear about it all the time. But... It's having that heart of unity, having that heart of restoration, to restore our brothers and sisters. If we have that heart, we'll be one. Just as he prayed in John chapter 17, he says, I want you to be one. Like one, he calls us one body. Like we're operating like, like just as one unit. That's the oneness that he's referring to. But when there's conflict, it leads to division. And the enemy will use division to do just that, to divide the body. And the Lord says, no, don't let your conflicts lead to division. Let those conflicts lead to a greater level of unification because if I can come to my brother, he's going to talk about forgiveness after this, but if I can come to my brother and say, hey man, this is what you did wrong. I, I, I get that. I, I, I'm sorry that I did that. Hey, Lord forgave me. I, I forgive you. Now that conflict was used for God's good and now there's a tighter bond and unity in that relationship, something that wouldn't have happened had the conflict not happened. God will use everything for his good and his glory, even conflict if we let him. But we have to walk it, walk it out the way that he's discussing in this text. Please pray with me. <clears throat> Lord, Thank you that you give us all the tools, you equip us to, to be unified in you. Um, God, I pray if there's, there's anyone that has any conflicts um, with members of the body and maybe even outside the body, um, in using wisdom, I pray, God, that those conflicts would be resolved, that you would give us the boldness and confidence to address the issues that need to be addressed. But as we address them, we would do it with your character and humility and love, knowing that there's a tighter bond you're trying to produce in us. And sometimes when those conflicts just continue on, it causes more division, Lord. And I pray that you would just give us hearts of obedience to, to, to do this, to resolve conflict the way that you discuss. In Jesus' name, amen.